This is Paradoxical, the podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today my guest is Elizabeth Barton from Echo Adventure Cooperative. Elizabeth, how's it going? doing great this morning. So excited to be here with you. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I had originally run across you and your business some time ago and when I was thinking about rebooting the podcast. And I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And I really, really want to talk to these folks. So I appreciate your willingness to come on, both because I think what you do is really cool work, but also I think the way that you're going about structuring and running your business, I think is different and important. And that's definitely something that I want to get into today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself who you are, what you do, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Elizabeth Barton. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Echo Adventure Cooperative. We are a socially and environmentally sustainable adventure company outside of Yosemite National Park. So before, like, give me the the lead up to what did you do before founding Echo and what was the buildup to the decision to do that? Do you want the uh, short answer or the real answer? I want the real answer. Okay. Even if it's long. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that. But yeah, I want I want the real answer. Let's 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 be let's be real here. Perfect. So I, you know, we always have our pitch, right? Or like really quick. Like this is we were sitting around a living room and and kind of griping about work and we decided to be the change. But in reality, it's you know, just like everything, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I had been working in recreation for gosh, 10 years, recreation management specifically. And I was aging out of this industry, which is what happens. At some point, you decide that you have to make real money and you have to go get a real job if you want a real family or a real home. And I was at that point. So I had left recreation, was going back to school to become a physician's assistant, and my sister died of a drug overdose. And I fell apart. (laughs) I don't know any other way to put it. Just everything, nothing made sense. Everything was chaotic. And I went to the only place that I had ever felt home, which was back here to Yosemite. And I just tried to heal and tried to understand what I was supposed to do with my little short life and how I was supposed to exist. And yeah, it was just this crazy moment in time. And I'm sitting in my living room, and I guess this is where the short answer comes in. I'm sitting in my living room with a bunch of former employees who were about to age out of the industry. And we were just griping and decided, well, I don't know that we decided that night, but we started trying to think of ways that we could solve this problem. Like, how could we create a company that would support people as they became adults, right? And, or they started to want adult things like families and homes and how... I do want to interrupt for one quick thing. So would you say adult, how old were you at this particular moment in time when all this was going on? Probably older than I should have been. So (laughs) I was like, gosh, 35 or 36. So I had left the industry at, at maybe... 34. And then, you know, my sister died when I was 35 or 36. And then I came back and that's when we were like, okay, the guys that I was hanging out with that day, they were all in their like late twenties, early thirties. So yeah, that's about when people in this industry decide to move forward. Well, I think it's in a lot of places, right. Where people actually do hit kind of an important pivot point of really deciding like, okay, what am I going to do? And I, I think I, I say this to the, the folks who are out there who are maybe a little bit younger and like they're, you know, running around at like 27 or 28 and they're like, what the heck am I going to do? How am I going to, it's like, you, you may not be there yet. And that's fine because yeah. often it is somewhere more in the, in the, you know, the 30 something range where we have 
these either critical moments in time or other situations that cause us to go, okay, let's, you know, let's figure this out. So back to your story, you're sitting around with all these other folks, like, what are we going to do? And can you pick it up there? The sort of economic sustainability portion was obviously the first thing that we were talking about. We had all at one point worked together um, for a, a, a B corporation. And so we knew what was possible. Um, now we had all worked for other agencies. I worked for, uh, was kind of doing some consulting for a company who routinely got in trouble for feeding ravens so that their guests could get cool pictures, which was completely against my ethos and the ethos of many naturalist guides out there. And, and so that brought up the idea of exploitation. We started talking about environmental exploitation, social exploitation, employee exploitation. And it, and we just created this list of things we would do different, right? Everybody's had that water cooler conversation. And three months later, we were incorporating. So it was this really incredible moment where we were all very ready to change. And none of us really understood what we wanted next. So it was a, it just a very serendipitous moment that led to Echo Adventure Cooperative. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like the right, a, a right group of people in at the right time talking about these experiences and realizing there was this commonality yeah. both in your negative experiences, but also a common desire to yeah. build or have something different. And so let's talk about one, the difference between a more traditional business or corporation and a cooperative, um, yeah. especially as it relates to Echo specifically, and what was behind your decision to make it a cooperative versus a more traditional business structure? So in these conversations, we started trying to understand what made these organizations or what changed these organizations. Nobody goes into outdoor recreation because they want to be rich. Nobody goes into outdoor recreation, I don't think, because they are planning intense exploitation. It just it just didn't make sense. Like, how does a company get from loving the outdoors and wanting to support access to nature to doing some of the horrible things that we had seen in our industry? And in that conversation, it was important to us that whatever we created, we made sure that there were safeguards so that greed or fear, which I think is probably the bigger issue, didn't corrupt our original intent. And so in that process, we started looking at stakeholder empowerment and how do we make sure that our stakeholders are always considered and there are a lot of opportunities to do that, but the worker co-op kept coming front and center in all of my Google searches, right? So I'd be up in the middle of the night, just like asking Siri and typing in Google and doing all these things, just trying to understand what it looked like to start a business. I had run many, I had never started one. And, and the worker co-op just kept popping up at the top of that search engine. And so that's sort of what led us there. The primary difference between a worker co-op and a, a traditional corporation is employee ownership. So in a traditional corporation, you have, well, there are several different types, but I think the one that we all think about is you have shares. People, their financial investment gives them power within that organization. If they give more time or more money, they have more power and decision-making, right? So you can have 70% of the shares and you have more decision-making ability. 
Whereas in a worker co-op, which is owned by the employees, there is one vote, one share, essentially. So right now, because there are, we're actually very low at the moment, but there are three worker owners in our cooperative at the moment. So Mm -hmm. I own 33% of the company. If we brought somebody else in, I would then own 25% of the company, 20% of the company. So my power changes regardless of how long I've been here, regardless of how much money I put into this cooperative. My um, my ownership changes based uh, on equal ownership. So really, it basically then in this structure, everyone has an equal portion of the company. And as the company or business grows, then that gets diluted in a sense. Yeah. Um, because the idea is to really make sure that everyone is equal within within the organization. Exactly, exactly. So somebody who walks in, they have the same power that I do. Um, and that can be really infuriating if you start a company because you, you know, you really want some say or some stake. And it can be really frustrating because sometimes my views aren't shared by the group. But that's the benefit, in my opinion, as as our society's needs change Um and I get a little fogey about things, um, my members can be like, well, I don't know that that's really an issue anymore. <laughs> We've had that conversation. And uh, and I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. And we start to look at, at what their needs are and we get to have that, that conversation. And I don't know that that happens in traditional organizations as often as it happens in cooperatives. Definitely not an organizational structure for somebody who wants to be in control, but for someone maybe who wants to be part of a a group or a community or something that shares responsibility and authority, it sounds like it could be very advantageous. What would you say as you've gone through the experience of, of building and you know being part of Echo here, how have you seen the cooperative model both be a thing that's been helpful for you and where beyond what we've, we've talked about, has it been challenging? So I would say the financial aspect of owning a cooperative is really interesting and makes us a little bit more resilient than a traditional organization. So for example, when the four of us were sitting in my living room griping about what was so frustrating in the outdoor, outdoor recreation industry, we maybe had $6,000 of sort of liquid cash between the four of us, again, this is not uh, an industry that you get rich in easily. And we were able to start an organization with that because of the cooperative model. And we were able to do it very grassroots. And because so many people in the cooperative industry have experienced that same level of desperation that led to their organization, right? There are so many free resources within this community. So it was this really fantastic experience, creating an organization and having all of this support and trying to understand what it meant to use this model for something that had never been used for. So that was fantastic. And then that helped us again during COVID. So because there was not one or two owners, there was at the time there were 10 of us, we were able to kind of roller coaster over COVID financially And we each took our individual hit, but it didn't destroy the company because the company almost acts like a not-for-profit. And then just having all of those people at the table, right? We're all community members. We're all avid outdoors. Well, no, we're not all avid outdoors 
people, but we are all passionate about environmentalism or outdoor recreation. Having all those people at the table, we were able to get a little bit more creative than I think we would have had it just been me trying to navigate COVID-19 and, and those closures. So that was all very beneficial and really exciting to be a part of a movement is what it felt like, right? We were able to like help our community and navigate COVID-19 and like stay relevant and stay active and stay financially-ish viable. And it, it was really kind of an exciting time. I think when other people were were feeling rather desperate, we were very motivated and very excited because we had each other. Now, where does it get tough? Is that the next question? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, all the time. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting because none of us had any background in how to start a business or maintain a business. None of us really had an HR experience. None of us were accountants. So all of that technical know-how, we had a lot of passion. We didn't have a lot of information. And so that was tough. I'm actually in school now for my MBA because we desperately needed somebody who could speak that language. I think the hardest moment we had was in 2021. This is right before I started my MBA program. We were trying to expand. We had found this really amazing property and we were sitting down with two venture capitalists who were excited about what we were doing and wanted to know. We, we were under the impression they were angel investors. They, they ended up just being venture capitalists. And we had a series of meetings where we were really put in our place. And it was embarrassing and it was frustrating and we were clearly being taken advantage of. And that's when it's hard, right? When people see your naivete and they take advantage of it. And we were smart enough to not sign anything and to move out of that situation and to gracefully exit, but we could have been taken advantage of. And I think that's when it gets really hard is people say, oh, worker co-op, it's a bunch of hippies. They don't know any better. Let's go. But that's when it gets tough is when people don't take us seriously. Uh, yeah, because there's obviously some assumptions that it sounds like people make or could make that are, one, not very nice, but two, also not necessarily very accurate and um, can yeah. lead to some challenges there. So so I want to I switch gears a little bit to the business and to what you do. Tell us about the sorts of um, adventures that you lead people on with Echo Adventure Cooperative. So in 2016, we got started as a guide service, right? So we offered hiking, fly fishing, backpacking, sightseeing trips in the national park and in the national forest, Stanislaus National Forest. It was fantastic. We all worked remotely. So we had um, little corners of our houses sort of dedicated to Echo Adventure. My entire garage was devoted to Echo Adventures and all of our operations sort of were handled sort of in these satellite offices across Groveland and, and Yosemite. In 2019, the end of 2019, we decided to get a physical location and expand our offerings because we have great timing. Our opening day for our Yosemite base camp, just as a side, was March 20th, 2020. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's not there, there. So we, um, so in 2019, we rented this massive building that was built in 1870 as a barn or a livery stable. And then over the years has just been turned into a, a host of different things. So it's this kind of chopped up gray hole that we rented and we turned a chunk of it into a wellness studio. So we were offering yoga, massage on site, as well as trips into the national park doing yoga. And then we put half of it as an outfitter. And the upstairs, we 
turned into something called the Adventure Loft, which is an accommodation or a lodging, like a hotel room for people. And then we weathered COVID somehow. (laughs) And in 2021, we had sort of a mass exodus of members just because, you know, at some point you can't keep navigating drama, right? Like it was just like one, one major fire, then COVID, then another fire, then a shutdown. And so it was just a lot. So we started to lose members. And so we shrink our offerings a little bit. And this is kind of where we are now. So we have two hotel rooms, uh, the base camp bunkhouse, the adventure loft. We have our outfitter, like I said, so it's got a used gear department where we buy, sell used gear. We have uh, outdoor essentials where we have Patagonia, Cascade Designs, really amazing outdoor companies. And then we have a little fly shop, which has Solitude, Fish Pond, Patagonia, and Reddington. And then and then we do our guided adventures. And then now we also have a gear rental service. So you can rent bikes, tents, camp stoves, like anything you need, bear bins, that whole nine yards. So we kind of brought it just into outdoor recreation. So who are the sorts of people who seek you out for these sorts of guided adventures? And what does that experience typically look like? Now, you know, I'm imagining as you're telling this, I'm imagining showing up for an adventure to this, you know, to this old barn and like to stay in the hotel, and like go in there and get myself equipped with whatever stuff I forgot or don't have because I'm, you know, outdoor clueless guy or whatever. It sounds really, really cool, but give us the actual experience of, of what that is, what that is like and how those adventures run. So I have the exact same sort of image when I think about how I want it to work, right? Where there's one person sort of using all of the services and they're like part of our family. And we're like, how have you been? How was your sleep? Like, let's go on this trip. Unfortunately, it is freakishly disjointed and absolutely amazing. I get to meet people from all over the place and none of them, you know, we have people staying in our rooms that would never go on an adventure. We have people in adventures that would, that, you know, that are staying at five-star lodges. So it's super disjointed, but it's actually really cool. We also share a parking lot with a Tesla charging station. So the people who come into our, <laughs> the people who come into our store are fantastic. They're like-minded folks. They're really environmentally driven. Obviously, thankfully, they're also usually affluent, so they can afford some of the more expensive items in our store, like Patagonia, for example. They have a big price tag because they have such a huge mission. So as you know, oftentimes really caring about the world around you can cost some cash. So it works out really well in that regard. But yeah, so essentially what'll usually happen is somebody finds us online. They've Googled, you know, what to do in Yosemite and somehow we've popped up. I'd say probably 40% of our business is word of mouth, which is really exciting. So they call us and they go, hey, you know, I've got two kids and my 70-year-old grandmother or 70-year-old mother, and we're all coming to Yosemite. What should we do? And so we have a set of uh, what we call adventure coordinators, and they sort of walk our clients through all of the options. And we've tried really hard over the years to make sure that we have options for anybody who might want to visit, regardless of their economic state, their ability, like whether or not they can hike 15 miles or they just want to sit in the car and take pretty pictures like we have both options we've got stuff for kids stuff for adults stuff for everyone stuff for families so we try really hard to kind of take a look at the demographics of people who who use our services and make sure that we provide those services for them so we're in fact one of the only companies in the Yosemite region that offers adaptive tours for people with disabilities so that's another really exciting thing that we've been able to offer and I think that comes through that, stakeholder 
focus, like looking at our guests and saying, what do they need? So we have a series of trips for anybody that we can imagine. So it's really, as I'm hearing you describe this, it is very much focused towards your customers and really trying to understand what are they wanting to do? Who are they? What are they about? And then having something or some kind of a package or building something that will suit them. And it sounds like what's happened over time is as you've served enough different people, you've evolved this, what sounds like incredibly like broad menu of, of options and choices and things. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't actually realize there was a name for it until recently when I, you know, I'm in school. Um, so there's this concept called design thinking where yeah. you, right. Okay. So I didn't know that was a thing. And when we were sitting down creating Echo and trying to understand who we were and what we were, we realized that we had really four stakeholders, four things that were incredibly important to us. And that was our, our team, our guests, our environment and our community. And so every decision we've made from the time we started Echo Adventures through today has to take those four things into consideration at all times. And we're lucky because as a co-op, we attract a lot of local ownership. So all of us live, work, and play here. So we kind of hit most of those <laughs> stakeholders in just a, a board meeting. Um, but yeah, so the guests are 25% of that decision-making. And so all of these tours, all of the things that we sell in our store, every consideration in our accommodations has to benefit those four things. I think that's probably the key to our success in all reality is just constantly trying to make sure that we are not injuring and in fact supporting all four of our, our primary stakeholders. You said you get a lot of business that's word of mouth. Do you get repeat customers who come back to have either different adventures or have kind of a similar sort of thing or, or what happens there? So um, thankfully we have this like wide array of stuff. So we do backpacking trips and then we also do one day trips. So oftentimes our guests will come to us, especially in the early days when we just offered adventures and they'll go on a trip with us. We build a rapport, they become friends, family even. And then the next time they're like, oh, you have this hotel room. So they'll stay at our hotel room or they'll be like, oh, I've never been backpacking. I trust you guys, let's go backpacking. So we'll go backpacking. Lately, we've been really getting pushed by our customers to expand. They're like, we, we want to go see Channel Island. So generally what we do is we hop online and we do some research and we find companies that we would book if we were going and we facilitate those repeat customers and help them find an organization in the area that they're going that, that will support their needs. And lately they've been saying, no, we want you to take us. So, we, <laughs> so we're actually um, in the process of expanding to Joshua Tree is going to be our first sort of big push southward. And then eventually up to Lassen is the next step and then over to Channel Island. So those are sort of the four big parks that our guests have been hitting and, and asking for services at. So that that's kind of the next step is moving into different national parks for our guests, literally. <laughs> right, because really cool. they're, they're pushing for it. So clearly yeah. there's something in what you're offering and what you're providing, like specifically you that is compelling enough to them that they're saying like, no, no, we want you to do this. Don't refer us. Yeah. Like, we want you to do this. So tell me more about what you think it is that they're getting from their experience of being with you and going on these adventures and having you lead them. That is that powerfully impactful to them that it's making them really, because that, that's a trust thing is what that is. 
we've actually had a lot of conversations trying to really articulate and understand this. And I don't know that I have an answer for you. So like I've said a hundred times, right, we, we're stakeholder driven. And I think part of that is we attract local guides because right now our, our the median age of our guide, for example, is... 37. If you look at the median age of guides among our competitors, they're in their 20s. And so I think that comes with that comes two things. One is just sort of an attention to detail and sort of acceptance of like wherever the day takes you will go. Like we've all let, like we let go of control a long time ago. <laughs> just like whatever, let's let's have a great day. So there's that. And then we all live here. This is our home. This is not just a place we are visiting for the summer. And both are great. I am not disparaging traveling guides. I've been one. Both have their benefits, but there is something when you bring your family to an area and you have somebody who lives, works, and plays in that area, like show your family around, like you're their family, like they can feel it. It's power. Uh, and they can take you to this you know, the hidden locations and get you away from the crowds. And I, I think people might just be really hungry for organizations that care. I think we've spent so long just sort of accepting corporate greed or exploitation. You know, these are just things that are like, oh, this is just par for the course with with business. And, and that's that's not the case. And in fact, Studies are showing that organizations that have a social mission, cooperative specifically, B corporations actually fare better in times of stress because they have that community that community support. And so I, I think that might be what it is. It is really hard to put a finger on, but but those are our best guesses. Makes sense. And I think what you were saying is very, very true for a lot of reasons. Another idea I would offer that I could see is in this time, especially post-COVID and just what's been going on in the world is where there's so much of a sense of disconnection that when we have the experience of having a personal connection that's close and then the shared experience aspect of being involved in an adventure is certainly a thing that can support and facilitate connection and bonding. And I hear how you, you talk about your customers. It sounds like you really do develop these close connections. And so it wouldn't be surprising that that's a piece of it too, is it's really filling a, um, a, a real need. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I hadn't really factored that in. But yeah, we really did lose so much just human connection during all of it. And it's been really hard for us to get it back. You know, I, I'm watching people sort of operate within their bubble in a very, just, you know, general people out and about in the world, right? In a very sort of self-driven manner, like they are really just super concerned about their needs and their experience and their wants. And we're really struggling to reach across and like have empathy for the person next to us. And maybe, maybe we provide that right now. That's, that's absolutely a, a possibility. I think that that makes sense. And then just the experience of, of, getting connected and being out in nature and being just more connected to the world uh, versus our, our devices. Yeah. Seeing something beyond like our just daily, blah, you know, is, is really fantastic. We need it right now for sure. So in this era of the internet and information everywhere and all of that, there's, there's certainly like if somebody wants to go on a whatever backpacking adventure, a fishing adventure, like I can get 
literally infinite information, YouTube videos, other things, get all the stuff that I need to be able to do it myself, which is not me advocating for that, but, but wondering like, tell us a little bit about what it is that you're providing through your service that differentiates from someone who is, who might go the the do it yourself route. Like why would they choose to, to engage you for one of these adventures or trips? That's such a fantastic question because I am that person, right? So pretty much any guy you've met is a do-it-yourselfer and we are not our customer. Like that was a huge part of, of creating Echo Adventure Cooperative is recognizing that we are not our customers. We become our customers and I'll explain that. But yeah, it was really tough. We were like, would somebody really pay $200 to do this with us? And then they would pay considerably more and we were shook. It was really hard for us. That was probably one of the toughest things is to really appreciate what we were offering. Now, in training our guides initially and really looking at who it was that we wanted to be, I went online and I found top tier guide services and I scheduled trips with them. This was probably two years in. And I explained to them like, hey, we're a guiding service outside of Yosemite. We'll never compete with you. We just see that you have these really amazing reviews and we want to show our guides like another option for how they can show Yosemite to their folks. And they were all very open. It was a wonderful opportunity for us to just get out and not be at work, but also to do some team building, but then secretly watch other guides do it. And in that, I realized two things. A, we're amazing and we actually didn't need that that guidance. But two, how beneficial having a guide is. And now that's all I do when I go places is hire guides. And I'll tell you why. There's a long, long way to get here. But what's so fantastic about it, especially when you hire a guide, that either works for somebody who's local or is local themselves, you get sort of a backstage pass to the area that you're visiting, right? So Yosemite, for example, any guidebook you pull up will take you to Yosemite Falls, Bridalville Falls, Half Dome, and El Capitan, and Tunnel. Those are the must-do places. And there's a reason for that. They're absolutely beautiful. But there's this fantastic hike. It was an old stagecoach road. I'm not going to give away too much, but it was an old stagecoach road. It was the primary way people would enter the park uh, at the turn of the century, at uh, the turn of the two centuries ago. Right, the turn uh, of the 20th century, so like 1900. <laughs> not, not 1999. I, get it too. I, I still think of the turn of the century as 1900 too, not 2000, so it's okay. You're not alone. Exactly. Yeah, you've got 20-year-olds being like, 1999? No. So, uh, so yeah, so you the old stagecoaches would take these crazy switchbacks into Yosemite Valley, and the first look that they got would be of something very similar to Tunnel View, which, for those of you who don't know, is this famous view where you've got Bride of El Falls on one side, El Cap on the other, and Half Dome right in the middle. It's just this iconic view of Yosemite National Park. And with that iconic view comes no less than 700 people at any given time elbowing each other for those pictures. Now, this old stagecoach hike takes 10 minutes to get some of the best views in the park. And I assure you, you will not see anybody else there. And that's what you're getting, right? You're getting this backstage pass to some of the best views in the park without 
anybody there because the thing that we want on our days off is to get away from humans. So we'll do just about anything to find those spaces. And then when we do find them, we want to share them with the people who matter to us. And those are our guests, believe it or not. I mean, we're spending eight hours with that family. We really get to know them and care about them. And so that I think is part of the reason. And then the other reason if you're a special type of person, is just the super nerd injection that you get from a guided tour. Like, I love information. And I love having information that nobody else has. Like, I'm a self-professed know-it-all. I'm obsessed with stuff in my brain. And that's what guides do for me. So I'll go out on a kayak or I'll go on a boat or I'll go out with a fly rod or I'll go out on a hike. And I've got a human dictionary, a human encyclopedia there, right? Like, oh, and this is that and that's that and this is this. And I would never have that information. There's not a guidebook alive that could give me what a passionate human can give me. So I was not uh, a fan of guided tours when I started this company, believe it or not, or when we started this company, but I've become one accidentally and I'm obsessed I'll never I'll never visit an area without a guide from here on out I, I love that it, one because it just really illustrates it's like there's some things that there that there's really no substitute for insider information in a sense uh, number one but number two and this is the thing that that's I think interesting that people probably don't think about or I should say I wasn't thinking about until you mentioned it is right we think about going out and doing these things as a way of connecting with nature but it also turns out what I'm really, really hearing for you is this is a way of also connecting with people, connecting with new people or old friends again, if you once you've once you've done it, maybe. And that there's something in that connection, again, and in the being able to, to share the experience or experiencing it in a way that you otherwise wouldn't, that further, I would imagine, I can only imagine, enhances the experience. I'm thinking now about other places where I've had tours or trips or things where there was a guided element to it. And I can definitely see where when it's someone who knows their stuff and shares it, because like, you know, I'm kind of a, you know, information nerd and all this stuff. And all these, tell me all these weird little details and trivia. I'm like, yeah. that's so cool. Right. And so people who do that, it really does add this whole other like layer and dimension to the adventure. And it sounds like that's really a big, a very big and compelling reason for why one would choose to engage you or if you're the kind of person i would imagine who's just like i don't want to spend a bunch of time googling stuff i just want to go have a cool adventure in yosemite <laughs> right absolutely absolutely and then can i can i share like a cool little story from one of our guides yes so we have this perfectly illustrates this so we have this guide who um is very stoic very he's walks very straight ahead he's a rock climber um doesn't really show a lot of emotion he'll like say some dry jokes sometimes and everybody's just like wait what what, what just happened um just very stoic but every review about this man online is warm caring loving i wouldn't trust my family with anyone else like over and over and over and over again. And one day I asked him, I was like, what are they seeing? Like, I think you're fantastic. This is not a slight, but what are they seeing? Because I'm not seeing warm when, when, when you're at these meetings, when we, and he said, when I'm on a guided tour, I get to be the person that I actually am inside. And I, I, I like, I'm kind of getting emotional, right? Cause it was just so beautiful. And I was like, okay, pray tell, like explain that. And he said, um, he said, when I'm in the real world, I have to protect myself and I have to protect my feelings and my 
experiences and the people I love and, and my things. And I'm always in this sort of protection mode. But when I'm with my guests, they're the only things that matter. And as long as I'm keeping them safe, the rest of it can go to hell. That's what he said. And I was like, that, you know, this is a lifetime guy. This guy will, he'll be the old man on the river, like tie and flash for whatever. And that's why, because it's the one place on earth he gets to be who he truly is. And I just, because there's no judgment. He's never going to see that person again. Well, I mean, he says that, but they're all like family. Like he, his whole Facebook is just all guests. And he went to Minnesota a couple of months ago and ended up staying (laughs) with all of his former guests. So he says he never sees them again, but he does. I think that story in particular really hits home, I think, as to why career guiding is so important for so many people and why we really should start to look at that as an option. For folks like him, that's his space. That's where he belongs. I mean, it's super that's, obvious, yeah. right? You hear that. It's like, that's the space where he feels safe. And the cool thing is for that is that allows him, I can at least imagine, to like for people who aren't so used to being out in nature and who might see it as not so much unsafe, but at least a little uncomfortable, right? Like like for me, yeah. it's like I'm I'm perfectly willing to go out and go backpacking, do that stuff, but it's not, it's not my comfort zone. I mean, I'm I, you know, I grew up in suburbs and in, in you know towns and stuff. So I'm not, I'm not that guy. And so going into that space is a little, it's a little uncomfortable and I'm a little bit like kind of, you know, I am anxious, but I can see how having someone like that would be really, really powerful from the standpoint of helping me feel safe and comfortable and really let me just kind of ease into and just really relax into the the adventure, which would make it um, something it would, I would get a lot more out of. And there's like tremendous value in there. You talk about like, why would somebody pay for this? That's why right there. Uh, yeah, I think sense of comfort is by far the primary reason, but then you've got all of these other benefits that you don't even expect. And then you walk away and you've had this moment in time that you can't forget that will shape who you are as a person, especially if you're a young person. I can remember at, I don't know, nine or 10 years old doing a summer camp. And one of those days was spent on a hike in the woods with this woman who was super nerdy and really kind and relaxed and just supportive. And, and, and it was the first time in my life I ever remember really caring about nature and probably is ultimately what led me into this career eventually. Right. And it was just this one brief moment with this really wonderful human in the middle of nowhere was enough to put me in this trajectory, right? Like to, to send me off. And, and I think sometimes, gosh, we get to do that for so many people. And it's just, I don't know, it just brings me so much joy. I love hearing how you recognize or seem to recognize the really the privilege that that is for you to be able to to do that for others and to be able to bring that for others. And it's so hearing you talk about all of this, it's so obvious how much there's a there's a respect and a you know um, and an honoring sort of there and how you talk about this that I'm sure comes through and how you're actually doing your work as well. It's really cool. Oh, thank you. One of the things that I like to do on the podcast is I like to explore with the folks that come on a current challenge or obstacle that they're having and see if we can unpack it and dig into it a little bit. So if you're if you're willing to play, um, I would love to do that with you and tell me about what is something that you're, you know, as a, as a business like wrestling with or feeling challenged by right now that we could explore a bit. 
Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. So probably the biggest one right now is I had mentioned that we are really excited to expand into different areas. Um, Yosemite has been our baby, right? Like this is where I came back to when I was at my weakest point in life. And so this is my home, no question. However, I do recognize that I have to leave the nest to expand Echo because that's really ultimately the way that it's going to be successful and it, and it can continue on and, and change communities and change lives like we intended. And I guess my issue right now is one of, like everybody's got the issue where they're just, there's just not enough people for jobs. But on, on top of that, I'm really trying to understand how to appropriately hand this little muffin that we've baked over to a general manager and say, here, she's yours now. Take good care of her. I'm around if you have questions. <laughs> I don't know if this makes sense. Right, and totally. Then taking my expertise and doing this elsewhere. You know, I'll always be the CEO of the organization, but I really don't want to be kind of that weird um, benevolent overlord, right? That's like, okay, you know, kind of micromanaging, you know, this location because it's my baby. And maybe this is not the kind of question you're looking for, but I guess this I'd love some advice on to how to, how to like, A, find that right person and B, give them the space that they need to do wonderful things with this company. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I, okay. It's such, I mean, I, I love that question. It's, it is a very real and important challenge because you recognize the thing I hear here is number one, you recognize like this is a really crucial pivot point mm -hmm. and or inflection point for Echo. How yeah. do we find someone who can facilitate and help us do what we need to do to be able to go go bigger, go broader, do more things? And um, that's you know because it, it's it, those are exactly the points at which it could be. A launch pad, or it could be something more, something more negative, right? Something problematic. Right. So, so I think one, the fact that you're like, "Ooh, this is something that needs to be really thought about and really managed carefully," is really, really good. So, I think let's see what <laughs> I'm trying to think of. Like, there's any because there, there's, there's so many so different many questions, questions which is which is great. I mean, it's like that's fine. There's so many different places one could go with this, but the thing that I'm wondering about is, is tell me for you about how you want it to look like. Let's imagine you bring in this person, it's successful. Where are things, you know, a year or two years down the road? What do things look like at that point? Let's start with that. So my, you know, I always have the vision that I want and then the reality is just completely <laughs> like all over the place. Um, but if we, if we go into my little back brain utopia and we look at Echo, um, what I envision is four or five base camps, Lassen Base Camp, Joshua Tree Base Camp, Channel Islands Base Camp, Yosemite Base Camp. They each are operating for their community, their specific customers, their specific members. And then here I am, as the CEO, sort of making sure that they're meeting the ECHO expectations and being there as a supportive leader to help them sort of grow the way that we grew here at ECHO, right? Like acknowledging the right things to focus on and staying out of the, you know, small town drama and supporting their employees, but not coddling their employees, you know, just being that person, that, that, CEO, I guess. <laughs> um, and then handling sort of the larger 
kind of marketing space, handling the larger kind of financial implications, you know, really, you know, kind of that overseer, but allowing each individual general manager or operational manager of those locations to have the kind of autonomy that they need to be successful. So I'm I'm curious because I see you referencing or hear you referencing this a lot. Are you concerned about your ability to to step out of the way and give these folks that autonomy? Because I hear you concerned about that. I'm just wondering, is that something that's likely to be a problem? No, absolutely not. Because I'm absolutely ready. There's no question. The thing that we keep bumping up against is finding that right person. And it's not like I'm like, oh, no, we got somebody, but they're not the right person. People are like, okay, well, I could get paid $26 an hour to work... I mean, we're really pay transparent. So if you're wondering why I'm just like throwing that out, like th- that's on our website. <laughs> you know, I could get paid $26 to, I don't know, what can you get paid? You know, to do medical billing, right? That's a perfect example. And not, and then go home on the weekends. How do we find that person that's like, I could pay $26 an hour to have this place run my life, you know, to really invest their heart and soul the way we have. That's the part that I'm worried that we're not going to find, that maybe our expectations are inflated. And if so, what are the other options? I guess that's that's sort of where I'm at right now. You're that kind of person though, right? Yeah, exactly. So I know it's out there. Right, because I I don't mean to dismiss your uniqueness, but like, let's assume you're not the only person out there who is doing this. So one thing that I hear, so far as I do hear, you know, an awareness of like, well, almost kind of negative, you know, negative assumptions, or are we going to be able to find this? And the the bigger thing I would say is start to look at who is the kind of person who would say, okay, yeah, I will absolutely take $26 an hour or whatever the amount is, right? But it's $26 an hour to do this because of the opportunity that it has and what that opportunity says to me. And that's, that's the thing I would want to say is, do you have enough of an understanding or enough of a, a model or an image of who that person would be so you know, one, where to look for them and two, to recognize them when you see them? That's a really, really great question. And I, I, know, I know what they look like, but I don't know how to find them. So that's, that's a really good direction to aim okay. my energy. Thank you. What do those kind of people huh. do? Where do they hang out? Yeah. I mean, so often, right. I mean, those are the people that are around the water cooler that are really frustrated by the status quo. And I think that it took me a long time to realize that in every group, you have the ones who are just like, okay, cool. This is a pity party. I want, let's go. Let's, I've got, I've got complaints. And then you have the ones that are like, how can we fix this? Who do we go to? How do we handle it? Right. And those are the ones in, in that, in that water cooler discussion that you really have to like put your arm around and be like, well, I can help come with me. (laughs) Right. Um, So I think that's the answer. I just, huh, that's really interesting. And where do we find them? Where do they go after they leave the water cooler? I guess is the question, right? Right. Like what, you know, where do they hang out? What do they do? What What do their lives look like? And starting to think about where, where one might intersect them, find them. Or the other thing is, who do they know? Who do they talk to? Where might there be common connection points, right? If we think about this yeah. as a little bit of a Venn diagram, like where's the overlap between you and them? And is that a place that you might be able to use as far as helping you find and finding these people? Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, that's some interesting stuff to think about. And I had not put that into perspective. 
Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I have I have one other thing that I wanted to um, throw out as it relates to Please. the these different base camps, and um, I'm wondering how well at this point have you or how thoroughly have you articulated in some I'll say written form like the values, the ideas, the things, because I hear you talking about it. Like you have, it's so clear to me, you have this really clear picture of like, here's what we're supposed to look like. Here's what I want these things to do, to be how I you know, want them to act, what their values are. But I'm wondering like, has that been articulated in writing yet? Yes, it has. And that was one of our, I think probably one of our success, like the reasons we are successful is because very early on, like I said, again, I didn't know it was design thinking. Um, and now I do. And now I'm obsessed with that term. But yeah, from the very beginning, we said, this is what matters. How do we articulate this? And we put it in writing. So it's, it's in our bylaws. It's in our, it's our mission. It's our values. It's our vision. It's all over our website. It's in, and what we call our guiding principles. So it's our compass, right? So every compass, those sort of the idea has four points and ours are our guests, our environment, our team and our community. And so we have to aim that compass in that direction at all times, in one of those directions at all times. And, and, and for a long time, I think it was easy to lose when we were talking. And I think this goes for every startup company. So hopefully somebody hears this and, and they can find value in it. I think it's really easy to lose your bearings, whether it's in the woods or at a business meeting, when you start talking about money and profit and employee shortages and regulations and permits. And that's where it goes wrong. That, I think, is that little moment where somebody starts a company because they're passionate about it and they lose their way and they end up doing something that they swore they would never do. And I, I think it's in that that transition. And so what we did when we found ourselves becoming overly sort of concerned with things that were not points on our compass was we start out every board meeting. We, they're quarterly now. We start out every board meeting reading the vision, the mission, and the values. And it's obnoxious. And sometimes you'll just hear us like, blah, 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 blah. You know, very monotone, just getting it out of the way because we have a hundred things to talk about. But somebody in the meeting now has it in the back of their head. So when we're talking about something, you'll always hear almost every conversation. Somebody goes, well, well how, does that, how does that affect our guiding principles or our pillars? That's another way that we put it every conversation somebody will bring that up and it's fantastic you're all right so i want to i want to challenge you on something if i can here yeah you're like it's it's kind of obnoxious except it's obviously not right right i think that's that part of you that maybe is a little bit uncomfortable owning it that like this or is an I important think I'm just thing or hyperbolic language i'm sorry okay but that's fair <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I can relate to that but the thing that i hear is 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 this thing that the fact that you do it and the way that you do it matters it's impactful yeah. And, and sure, we've all seen corporate vision statements that are like doublespeak garbage. Right. I have no doubt yours is not. And that's the point is when we have them that tie to values that are meaningful, that are actionable, that people care about, and we make it clear that's part of who we are, it's actually, I think, really important to stay connected to that. And I think reading it is a real powerful way of doing it. So I would, I would, I mean, say that that's, you know, that's actually something I would really encourage you to really em embrace as a, this is a very important ritual for us as an organization, especially as you look to grow. 
and expand because that's the point at which it's possible to start getting diluted. Yeah, exactly. And diluted both with the D and the T versions of this, right? Right, right, right. But, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But both of those could be, you know, could could be pro- problematic there. So, okay, so you've got these things written. How how good do you feel that you are at this point at? being able to identify or filter in or out people who are aligned with those versus not? I'm terrible at it. Absolutely terrible at it. I go into every every interaction like it's an opportunity and that everybody deserves grace initially, which is fantastic in life, terrible in business. And so I've learned that this is a downside of mine. And so that's why I don't own a company. I have a cooperative. <laughs> Because I hope that the people who stick around are better at it than I am. And they are, which is fantastic. Like, for example, if somebody comes in and they say, okay, I'm an owner now and I want to do X, Y, and Z. And we're like, awesome, let's do it. And we invest all this money and then they leave. And now we have all this expensive infrastructure and nobody to utilize it. And so we have to then rethink it, which is more money and more time and more energy. And this happened just a couple of times. And so every time that happens instead of going, oh, look, we failed, right? Which is an easy thing to do. And this is where I come in. This is my superpower is to say, no, this is an opportunity. Let's make sure it never happens again. And so we start looking at each situation and we say, okay, well, how could we have prevented that? And if we had done this, could that have changed this? And then we fix it. And then the next time we get hurt a little less and we button that up. And then the next time we get hurt a little less and then we button that up. And then another time we realize, okay, well, that was a little too strict because this person's awesome and they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. And, and, and then we fix that, right? So a perfect example of that is we started out with a $2,000 buy-in into our cooperative. So you work with us, you buy in for $2,000 and now you're an owner in the co-op. And we chose that amount of money because we wanted somebody to be really serious about it's not too much money to make you broke, but it's a, more money than most people just have like laying around to join a co-op, right? But then we realized that while that did help keep out the riffraff, it also really created a financial struggle for some of our co-op candidates. They couldn't invest in us because they were as broke as we were when we started the thing. So we reduced that, but we increased the candidacy period. So instead of six weeks, it's now six months. So we sort of traded money for sweat equity. And so we're constantly shifting and moving based on our experiences to make sure that both we're protected and that people who could benefit from our organization have access to it. So it's just this constant like shifting game, trying to make sure that everything's being accounted for. I think I've just now gone completely off the rails from that question, but no, it's, this is actually, I think it, I think it's really interesting and, and, and relevant because what I'm hearing is you are trying to learn from your experiences. Yeah. Right. Trying to refine what you do, how you do it and use that because it was all the question was about, you know, finding the right people essentially. Um, and you starting with, that's not something you're, you're good at, but it sounds like you've got some processes in place that are helping you to better identify where things have broken and how to have things work better. And how much of that has been documented or captured in some sort of written form? 
So thankfully we have this really amazing, and it just so happens that it's outdoor themed, but we have this really amazing software that we use called Basecamp. It's a mm-hmm. project management software. Yeah, most familiar with it. it. It's great. Great software. Yeah. yeah. And it's super user friendly. Like some of them we've looked at, we're just like, I'm sorry, we're doing what with what? How do we? Okay. Um, whereas Basecamp is really basic and it, that can frustrate a very large organization, but for us, it's fantastic. So from day one, we started with this this software and pretty much the entire transformation, the arguments, the positives, the moments, the things that we really want to forget, all of it is is on Basecamp. And then we have every incarnation because I'm um, also really sentimental. And so, so every cup we've designed is in my cabinet. Every document we've designed, every the incarnation of our bylaws, all of it is, is saved in perpetuity. So we have that going for us, right? You know, I, I think that professionalism has really benefited us, making sure that all of that is documented. And if somebody comes in, because transparency is really important to us, and that's kind of a key principle to cooperatives, is that transparency. So we want to make sure that if somebody comes into our cooperative and they really want to dive into the weeds and see how we got where we are, they have that opportunity. I mean, I'm certainly not sitting there going, oh, in 1990, you know, it's not like that, but they do have that opportunity to, uh, to go through and figure out what it took to get us where we are today. Now, how much of that do you do in looking at the successes that you've had and what created them? Like big wins, big successes, big positives. How much is that something that you've studied and looked at and captured? That is such a good question. Not enough. So I have a lot of energy. I get a lot done in a day, probably more than most people. Definitely an obnoxious characteristic to the rest of the co-op members. They're like, could you just sit down? That'd be great. Can you take a day off? But it's just who I am. I love it. But in that... I oftentimes will forget, like, look at we what we accomplished last week, right? I sometimes really struggle with that. And again, that's the benefit of a co-op because I'm always looking forward. Like, I need 15 things that I'm going to do today, and we've got to redo the shed, and we have to make instructions for the new guy, and we have to train this person, and I need to put a thing out for this. And I forget that five years ago, I was operating out of my bedroom, and I was living in poverty, and I'm not now. And I I have a hard time remembering those things. And again, that's where a co-op is really beneficial because they routinely remind me that I need to step back and go, look at what we've done. And so just another benefit to having a group of people around you to help you not only plan, but remember. For sure. Yeah. It's because the thing I'm, you know, you've, you've had the experience of building this co-op and learning. And there's there's a lot of good experiential data there. You have, I suspect, a lot of the formulas for success there. It yeah. sounds like you've been somewhat captured. And I think that the th- thing with looking at these other base camps that you're looking to expand to, it's really about you figuring out what is the formula that we've used here? What's the winning formula? Mm-hmm. And how do we replicate that both from the standpoint of what are the things we do, but also from the standpoint of who are the kinds of people who work and who are the ones who don't, and then making sure you've got a person or people who can really do a good job of identifying that it's, you know, none of that of course is a guarantee, but it sounds like that's the thing that really would help at least uh, optimize 
the chances of being able to replicate what you've created here in these other locations? Gosh, that is such a good point. And I just can't hear. So, you know, this is my home. I am sort of the target audience. I'm the community. I'm the environment. I'm the guide. I'm the, right? So it's really easy in Yosemite for the founding members, all of us were obsessed with Yosemite, to create this thing here. It's very, very easy. And then as we're looking, gosh, it's so funny that you said this. As we're looking to expand, like right now, we've really got our sights on Joshua Tree. What we're doing, and this is so, and we recognize it and we're trying to fix it, but what we're doing, because we don't have that emotional connection with Joshua Tree beyond just like, oh, it's so pretty. I've never lived there. I don't, I didn't go back there because my sister died, right? This wasn't one of my guide's first homes away from home, right? Like we don't have that connection. So my inclination is to lean back on my corporate experience. Let's handle this the way I've handled my other jobs, which is not what made Echo successful. And it's not a is 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 not is not what we need to do. But it's so interesting how when a system is stressed, we go back to what we're used to as yes. opposed to Yeah. Gosh, it's so funny that you said that because we we do see it, which is just hard to break it, right? And go, okay, well, how do we and I think you're right. I think it's about, I'm, I'm processing your question. <laughs> I think it's about finding that person who feels about Joshua Tree the way we feel about Yosemite. I think that's key, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think that that's been part of the plan until just now when I'm having this conversation with you. So. <laughs> well, so, so it sounds like um, you're doing what is exactly the normal human thing to do is under stress. We do sometimes tend to regress to a lot of unconscious defaults, right? Yes. And it can cause these exact same sorts of errors and that we end up reverting to these, these sorts of things. Or if we don't have a known answer, we'll look somewhere else for one, right? right. Well, what, what, you know, what's, what are they doing in corporate America? Right. And that's really not the question. And the question is, what did Echo Cooperative do to build the success that they've had in Yosemite? And how do we replicate that in Joshua Tree? And I think the answer is I don't replicate that in Joshua Tree because I think that's really fascinating. I'm like having these realizations as we're having this conversation. And this, I think this is such a perfect example of like why a co-op is so awesome. You're not obviously part of the co-op, but it's these kinds of conversations, right? These like, wait a minute, let's, hold on, put a pause, like, hold on, let's have this conversation because... We're all passionate about it. I mean, things like this happen every day. Not to this extent. This is fantastic. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just having that, that com- those conversations make a difference. Being forced to expre- explain yourself and express yourself really can challenge what you think is going on. I think that's, well, that's how we grow, right? Is finding a new perspective or a, a different way of thinking about things or looking at things and having conversations with the right people that is, is such a great way to allow and, and, and to spark that. So for you, like I hear it, like, okay, we've got this idea of adding these base camps. What else is your vision for Echo Adventure Cooperative and what you would like to see it become and to do and how you'd like to see it impact the world? And I know that's a really big multi-part question. So if your answer gets long, that's okay. It's my bad for asking you such a compound (laughs) question. This is part of why we founded Echo and what we wanted to do. And 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 these are the milestones that I'm very good at measuring and the ones that I take so much joy in and what keep me going when it gets really hard. <laughs> so yeah, we want to take the exploitation out of this industry, period. And that's 
the the exploitation on guides, right? So, um, and we haven't dive, dove into this or dip, d- dived. No, but yeah. but I'd like to because I that was one of the things I wanted to talk about, and it just kind of slipped slipped through. So, while we're while we're here, yeah, take a minute and tell us a little bit about that because that's such a thing. People who are not in that industry have no idea, right? They don't know, they don't yeah. see it. So, tell us some more about what that is how it happens and all that. Cause I think it'd be one interesting and important for people to understand, but two, I suspect there'll be some similarities to how exploitation occurs in other industries. Exactly. And so I, I want to preface all of this by saying we're really fortunate in our corridor specifically of Yosemite National Park, because we have two nonprofit guide services. We have a B Corporation. I mean, we have really amazing guide services in our corridor. And this is why I probably keep coming back here and why I'm so obsessed with Groveland and its potential because the people here are fantastic. And so I get into recreation. I'm really heavily invested in this corridor. And then I leave and I start doing consulting work for other hotels. Other This is my, my grown-up attempt at staying in recreation. I start doing consulting work, trying to help other hotels find additional revenue, trying to work with brand new companies to become successful, like helping them with SEO, just all kinds of dumb stuff early, early on. And what I saw was very different than what I had experienced here. And what I had been hearing from my guides as they would work for other companies before we we founded Echo was very different. So I go out into the real world and I see kids living in tents in the backyards of mansions no joke, or huge lodges, big, beautiful lodges where customers are eating flown in like salmon or whatever, right? Like just really fancy stuff. And these kids are living in shacks without flush toilets, which is part of the adventure. But at some point it's like, come on. Um, there's a lot of alcoholism in the industry, especially among people who stay in the industry, like who don't grow up and, and very little care about their health and well-being after they get off work. They're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week for something called Peace Rate, which is an attempt to not pay overtime. I'm not suggesting that everybody who pays Peace Rate is exploitive. I, I hope nobody hears this and thinks that, or that every guide service is exploitive. But there is a lot of exploitation in that industry. And then once a person gets of a certain age, they're sort of not useful anymore. And we see that a lot. Um, you don't see a lot of diversity in the guiding industry. It is generally white, affluent youth. You don't see people with disabilities represented in the guide industry. And and I once was told, well, that's counterintuitive. And I thought, well, that's the problem. <laughs> you would think that. And then it, it's so interesting. Like I'll, I'll give a perfect example. At least as of last year, um, there was no female fly fishing guide in Northern California. It's really hard to wrap my head around that that's actually the case. I mean, I both believe it and I'm like, what? How is that possible? Exactly. And so, um, you know, I routinely go to meetings where I'm the only woman at the table and all of us are white. And it's a really interesting space. Um, It's kind of like the Wild West and there's no expectation that it should change. And I'm not okay with that. And the guides that I was sitting around my living room with that day weren't okay with that. And so that was a big part of the things we were trying to change is is how do we create an opportunity? And I don't mean from like a white savior perspective where we're like, you know, drilling wells in Africa. That's, That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is how do we create an opportunity for 
Black board members, for people with disabilities to sit at this table, for, you know, a, a Hispanic CEO, like how do we provide these opportunities? And so that was a big part of employee ownership, was trying to understand how we create a space for anyone to sit at the table and make decisions. And the only way to do that was to make sure that everybody had the right to sit at the table and make decisions. That my bias or, you know, Brian's bias or Nate's bias didn't come into play. That they self-selected to be there and had a voice. So we built that into our bylaws with our worker, collective board worker cooperative structure. And then you see the exploitation on the environment. So you have guides, like I said, feeding animals to lure customers or to, to excite customers. You know, there's there's all kinds of... Uh, you know, a perfect example is what just happened with the, the company that sent all the millionaires to the bottom of the ocean, right? Like that was not an appropriate vessel for that. And so they were charged a lot of money and didn't even know they were in harm's way. That is not uncommon. I, I just see this kinds of things over and over and over again. You also see exploitation with the customers. So uh, I worked for an organization once and they're defunct. So that's why a lot of these companies are defunct, which is why I feel comfortable talking about them. I would never just like disparage an operational organization. But he um, would, if somebody had a booking and it was like maybe a two people, two person booking, and then a seven person booking called that was worth a lot more money, he would cancel the two person booking, even if it was just a few days away. I couldn't imagine doing that because now you've just left these two people without any options because everything's booked. And so, so there's, you know, just all of this. Well, and then the community. So Groveland's a small community. You see a lot of organizations go out all over all over the Sierra, and individuals will buy up long-term housing and turn it into Airbnbs. And so now we have no affordable housing in our in our area. When we started Echo in in 2006, I paid $750 a month for a condo. That same condo is going for $3,000 a month. Wow. That's insane inflation, mm-hmm. but it's because of the advent of short-term rentals. Like, why would they rent it for seven fifty when they could put it on Airbnb and make tens of thousands of dollars? This is a huge problem in so many, so many places. Um, Absolutely. I, know. I mean, I, I grew up, I grew up in Santa Cruz, and I mean, it's always been expensive, but it's really, 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 really expensive because yeah. of so many homes that have been turned into Airbnbs. There, it's it's really awful. Exactly, and so we're like, okay, well, how do we address that? And then you've also got instead of putting in the work to create something that is sustainable that a community member could could work at. You have, it's easier just to hire kind of traveling guides. And again, they're amazing. There's no judgment there. We also pad our, our operations with traveling guides. I was a traveling guide. But a lot of these organizations, 100% of their staff flood the area. They rent the few little places that are available to rent. They shove a ton of guides in there. They live like little sardines for six months and then they're out. And that doesn't stimulate our economy. That doesn't support our tax base. It doesn't do anything to support our community. So we were like, okay, well, how can we adjust that? So it's all of these levels of exploitation. We started to just check them off and say, how could we be a little different and just be part of the solution? How do we be the change that we want to see in our community? And that was building the very structure of Echo Adventure Cooperative, looked at those things and tried to address them. And so we're seeing that, not to play on words here, but we're seeing the echo of that effort throughout our organization. So our minimum wage at Echo Adventure Cooperative is $18 an hour. 
which is $3 over the minimum wage in our county. And we were by far the highest paying company in Groveland for a long time for base labor, right? Like for adventure coordinators. And all of a sudden we look across the street and the pizza company is offering $18 an hour. And then another guide service is offering $18 an hour. And then another guide agency is offering $18 an hour. And I remember one of our guides was kind of, or one of our members was kind of frustrated. And we were like, no, 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 you can't be upset at this. Like, this is what we wanted. Like, this is fantastic. If they offer more than we do, then we've just created economic prosperity in our community because they're they're competing against us like mm-hmm. we're, we're we wrote we raise we're raising, the, raising bar. the bar yeah and and that's that's the essence of what we want to do we want to be the change we want to be the example we want to be the thing that people have to compete against because if they can't get employees because they're shit employers excuse my language they need to through market become better employers and so we understand that not everybody has the desire to be better, but we do know what it takes to make somebody be better because if they don't, they can't operate. And so if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. And that's what we're doing. And it's working, at least in this community. And now what we want to see is that working in other communities. So that's our goal. And it's wonderful. Well, I love that so much because it's, I mean, it really is such a, and it's, you can see, I mean, you can probably hear it. And folks who are listening, but I can see just looking at, at Elizabeth since we're we're on video here, how much this you know she really fe- personally feels this and how important it is to her, and it's it's really so cool. I mean, one of the things that I really admire about you is what you're doing here is one just the service that you're providing, right? Is this really cool thing helping people connect to nature, helping people get to experience nature in a safe way, in a deeper way, and there's so much value and import in that. But then doing it through a business model that's actually designed to one, make the industry more sustainable, be mindful of the environment, but then also to really challenge some of the economic norms that aren't necessarily in the best interest of people as a whole and really do all of that. And able to be doing all of these things from what is a pretty small entity. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. And, that's, and I, I love that. And that's, I think that's, that's the thing that I want to underline all of this with for folks who are wondering like, how much, you know, what can I do? Yeah. Well, more than you think, Way more <laughs> what, than I, you. what I would say. Yeah. And I, I think, <laughs> I think your story is, is, is a great example of that. So Elizabeth, I'm, I'm, there's so many more things we could talk about. We could go on for forever here. Um, but for folks who are interested in knowing more about you, the work you do, connecting with you for an adventure, what is the best way for them to connect with you online? Yeah. So our website, it pretty much covers everything that I've talked about here. We even go through our employment structure and our fact um, section, our frequently asked questions section. We're at echocoop.com. That's E-C-H-O-C-O-O-P.com. And then there's a little contact us button at the bottom. You can reach out to me through that. Um, we're also at adventures with an S at echocoop.com, which is our email. And then our phone number. Do you want that? Is that Sure. Sure. It's um, 209-732-5161. And we're always willing to answer questions about Yosemite, about worker co-ops. Like we understand that we carry a lot of torches, B corporations, like whatever you want to chat about, just give us a call. We'll, we'll have that discussion. <laughs> so, so many different things. And then I know you're yeah. on Instagram as well, right? Yeah. So that's the passion project of one of our employees, Brian Burnett. So I handle Facebook because I'm older. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> I get the demographic. Um, Bryant um, is just all over our Instagram and he does amazing things, our reels. If you're ever bored and just want some inspiration, go in and check out our reels. He does such a fantastic job putting his day-to-day world into into you know digestible video content so i highly recommend it it's really cool good stuff there for sure so i will of course have links for all of this in the show notes for folks to be able to check out and connect to and elizabeth i just want to say um thank you so much for for taking the time to come and talk and for uh fighting through again hopefully all of you who are listening won't be hearing this but we had some technical issues that we had to had to kind of navigate through here and um elizabeth's uh, been great about being uh, persistent and continuing to to push against them and and get through them so I'm, i'm grateful for that so we were able to have such a great conversation so thank you so much for for sharing your story and uh, for the work that you're doing um such such important powerful work and really grateful that you're out there gosh and thank you so much for just giving me the opportunity to remember you know sometimes we just need to talk about what we've done so we can remember why we're here so it was just really fun kind of diving back into it and really really getting to piece it apart and for all of your advice this is fantastic i'm really excited to go sit down and talk to my crew and be like hey i got some ideas so thank you so much for everything you're very very welcome i'll talk to you soon <laughs>